Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, this is Jeff Boucher, and you're listening to Mind Space. This week, we're talking to Ray Morton. Ray Morton, welcome to Mind Space. It's really great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, boy, you've written about some of my favorite movies ever, and uh, I was eager to have you on the show and talk about some of your books and to talk about some of these films that they just they tower over popular culture. Uh, they really do, and their influence uh, is amazing to see. Um, we'll start with King Kong. Uh, the, the second version of King Kong uh, is the one that you've written about, and that's the one with Jeff Bridges. And, yeah, and Jessica Lange, right. Exactly, yeah. and then Michael Cimino. Uh, Kong is back in the headlines now. Uh, the gorilla is, is yes. back among us. <laughs> it uh, is Godzilla versus Kong, sure. Yeah, and I know you've seen the film. Uh, and did you, was it everything you hoped for? <laughs> um it was okay <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly what you hope for exactly yeah. what you expected that's that is true uh it's it, it's interesting to see how films are made today you know this one uh not to to you know uh hit it in the head too hard or anything but it seems to me it's almost like a pinata it's like it's uh if you hit it with a stick like everything flies out of it uh it's got like yeah. a little bit of every movie from like the last 40 years in it. It feels like, you know. That, it's, I'm having that exact conversation with somebody the other day. It just, <laughs> it feels like a laundry list of here's a little Lord of the Rings and here's a little Kong and here's a little whatever else. And um, at a certain point, I kind of lost track, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's right. It's like a scrapbook. It's like a yearbook of all the movies that, you know, through the decades. Um, and some of that is a nod. It, it's very fashionable or not fashionable. It's very common among young filmmakers these days, especially. Uh, to acknowledge, to like tip the hat, you know, like I, I can't tell tell you how many times I've seen Star Wars trench chase in a movie. Sure. At this point, it's like, please just kind of stop. It takes me out of the movie because it's it's so common, you know. Well, what what I think happens is they do the sort of the tip of the hat, but sometimes it feels to me like they don't quite understand what they're tipping their hat to. So you get the sort of the imagery, but you don't necessarily get the point. And I kind of felt that a little bit about Godzilla versus Kong, I think. Yeah. And then yeah. you also have to wonder how many of these are, are meant deliberately or meant yeah. deliberately to be observed, or if they're just, you know, swipes, you know, sure. which is, there's a grand tradition of swipes in Hollywood. I mean, what's the old saying? Uh, amateurs borrow professional steel. Steel, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 at some point, it, it's, uh, it makes you feel like that the filmmakers, uh, and, and this, I'm not talking specifically about Kong at all, uh, the Kong Godzilla movie, but just in general, it sometimes makes you feel like uh, there's uh, more filmmakers who have experienced a lot of movies than have experienced life. I mean, if you look yes. at 
the movies of the 70s, uh, like Spielberg movies that I know that you're a fan of, and I'm a big fan of, um, they, they're informed by uh, what he's seen on screen, but somehow he, this very young guy made it feel like they were lived in. Uh, people seem yes. to have lost that, that talent. Yeah, that's kind of like, there's a couple of projects that have been around lately and I, I won't say what they are, but they have recycled, I think the people who recycled, the people who recycled Spielberg and Lucas. And the thing is that that's, I guess what I'm getting at is it does feel like you're seeing a compendium of films, but you're not sort of seeing the life that's under it. And people will knock Spielberg and Lucas sometimes, you know, they were knocked in their day for, well, these guys only know movies, right? But I, you're correct. There was something else in there. There was real life in there, seen through the eyes of guys oh, wow. who love these things. Yeah. Some of the newer projects, I feel like, oh, I, I saw those five movies and maybe I'll go watch those now because <laughs> yeah. they, they were the originals, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and I mean, you know, the, the extreme version of that would be like Quentin Tarantino, who was like, movies are, it's just, it, it's an ode to movies that we haven't seen, you know, yeah, probably, you right. know, yeah. um, but his has, uh, you know, he had a pretty gritty upbringing uh, and had a lot of time on his own. And so, I mean, his, uh, his films are informed by a lot, as much by the street and the bus rides he took, I, I think is the time he spent in theaters. But, he's, uh, but uh, Spielberg is a fascinating example because he was so young when he, when he sprung on the scene and, and it's hard for, to communicate to people now how much Jaws, for instance, changed things in Hollywood. I mean, it was exactly. a, a, a sea change by the way that films were marketed and approached and released. Um, I mean, people, do you think people kind of lost that knowledge? Oh yeah, I, I think people don't, especially uh, people working currently, don't have a sense of what things were like before that. Yeah. And, then, and then certainly, like you said, with Jaws, the blockbuster um, release patterns and, and all of that, but even in the way movies were approached, which I think, like, you know, we'll get into it later, but Close Encounters, I think, yeah. started a sort of a, and Star Wars started a way of going at fantasy things that became the way you do it. Right. And I, I think people, depending on, you know, when they came into all of this, I was lucky enough to know what those kind of movies were like before those guys. Mm. I got to be there for all of that, which I feel really grateful for. But it's so funny to see it now. Like, it's just the language now. And I'm like, no, those guys invented that language, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, if, and, and all you have to do is look, if you show Star Trek, the first Star Trek movie to an audience now, they're just kind of like they're they, they're just really thrown off by it and same with 2001 and and i'm not comparing those two films to each other but they're part of the previous lexicon yeah uh, you know they're informed by the day the earth stood still and 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 uh forbidden planet and and um and just the the kind of and also just the way hollywood handled big movies i mean ben hur had more in common with you know 2001 than 2001 does with you know, most sure. of the movies being released today uh, in that approach, that, that kind of classical approach. Um, Close Encounters, you mentioned, I, let's we'll just jump to that one because we might get depressed talking about King Kong too much. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, with that film, you know, that one, it feels to me there's no way that movie gets made today by a major studio. Like if you, it, the, yeah. and the way it finished, uh, it's it's really it's it's an eccentric film in some ways. Very much so. Um, it, it's an interesting movie in the sense that he kind of made it up as he went along. Mm 
Yeah. Because if you ever look at the early scripts, I mean, the basic idea is there, but he kept adding things as, as the film was in production and in post. So you get to the end of the film, the whole thing that happened happens with Roy Neary at the end was yeah. essentially improvised. That he was not supposed to go off with the aliens at the end. And so there's some things in the film that are a little raggedy in terms of, like one of the things that people hit Close Encounters for now and Spielberg himself has sort of made a comment is, well, how could a father of three, yeah. you know, just go away forever? Well, the thing is, he was 27 when he did it. He wasn't a father. So I don't think that even entered his mind. And the other thing was they kind of made it up. So yeah. it's like, it wasn't really conceived that way. But I think some of the things in the movie that are wonderful were put in there and maybe yeah. some of the things that are a little glitchy or were put in that way too. And the idea that you could make a movie on that scale kind of in an improv improvisatory way, I, you could never get away with that now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, although part of me thinks that with the, the you know, you think about Men in Black 3, kind of a random movie to pick, but I mean, that movie started filming before they even wrote the third act, like because yes. of Will Smith's schedule. So so yeah. there's a part of that in Iron Man. I mean, um, uh, I, w I went on the set of that movie and, you know, Jeff Bridges was calling it the, the world's most expensive student film um, because <laughs> it was like you, they, they they rewrote it every day, you know? Okay, um, yeah. You know, and part of that's like the uh, Robert Downey Jr. And, 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 and Favreau and, and also they had, but they had, unlike this, they had 40 years of comic books at that point that, I mean, they knew who Iron Man was in a way that nobody knew about Close Encounters. Uh, you yeah. know, there, there was yeah. no, there's no framework for, for, what, for what Spielberg was doing at that point. Um, it's interesting because it's also, it's so counter to the way Spielberg makes films now. Like it, he, yeah. he, he, uh, he blocks scripts in famously, right? I mean, he, he won't even start shooting unless the film is, is uh, a script is really locked. Yeah, yeah. Which probably makes, I'm guessing that comes out of his producer experience, you know, which it, from oh, a yeah. producer point of view, that makes sense. But even Close Encounters, like they had the script, they shot, and in fact, they shot pretty much the script, but, yeah. but he was so enthusiastic in those days, he just kept adding things. So it's almost like this, yeah, I'm trying to think of like the difference, because you're right, I mean, scripts today, these films are in production and they don't have the things nailed. But I think that's almost sort of part of the development process now. Yeah. Like the, the shooting is almost part of that. And star he schedules. Star ex schedules. Ex exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think the guy who determined the schedule on Close Encounters was Steven. You know, it wasn't yeah. anyone else at that point. But it, it's like they had it, but he just kept adding layers to the cake because he was so enthusiastic. And there's a famous quote. I think it was one of the... Um, the assistant cameraman of the grips or something someone was he would steven was complaining something like because he would he would watch movies every night he'd finish work go home and watch like 2001 or yeah. still or something and then and then come up with a million ideas and i think it, i think it was one of the camera guys said um you know if you stop watching the damn movies every night we'd be on schedule because you wouldn't <laughs> keep adding all of it and yet at the same time the movie's great i i think it's one of he kind of downplays it a little bit now. Like, I, I, think, I think he's done so many other things, but to me, it's, it's like one of the more personal films he ever did. And a weird thing to call a gigantic movie, but it's really personal. Yeah, well, and there's something about it that's very interior, which is yeah. interesting. Like, for, yeah. I mean, it's the biggest spectacle film, first a spectacle film, because it is, it, it, 
it's somehow an interior story yeah. uh, and, and an eccentric uh, production. It's a story about creative work, I think. I mean, it's about a guy who gets obsessed with an idea and can't let it go and it blows up his entire life. And my thought is that sounds a lot like the guy who made the movie, especially yeah. if there, there's a famous quote, which I'm, I'm not gonna say here because it's a little rude. Oh, but no, he, feel free. <laughs> yeah, but he, he made a comment once to, his girlfriend was complaining she he wasn't spending enough time with her. And he said, you don't understand. I'm fucking my movie. <laughs> and, and I and I think that 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 is like that. I mean, again, so it's a little off yeah. color, but it's no, um, no, no. It, it's interesting. It's yeah, very interesting. But I I kind of miss the days with him where he was that invested because he now I think he, you know he's he's brilliant in how he carries off a film. But those early ones, you can you can feel him in there, you know, in yeah. a way that you can't quite right now, you know. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That, that just brings up a couple things. That, my first thought, and it's kind of a random one, but speaking of Spielberg and sex, is that I think he might be the most, on screen, the most sexless director in history. Because I, I, can you think of a single, like, lovemaking scene? It, it, the closest thing in the Spielberg film, I think, is in Catch Me If You Can, which is one of my favorites. I think it's just yeah. an extraordinary yeah. film. Uh, Jennifer Gardner with the playing cards. And, like, I mean, it's still, it's all innuendo. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it's interesting because he I, that quote's very interesting to me because I, he's that's so salty and I can't see him yes. being salty, you know. Uh, yeah, he, it's you're right. A, you know. Yeah, no, I um, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, there's the, that's not a big element in his films. Yeah, know? and then when it is, it's done. I think stylized like. There is a love scene in Raiders, but it's about the right. snappy. I mean, it's got a great that's line right. in it, but yeah, but it's, that's actually um, the sexiest scene he probably ever filmed. Actually, I think. That I think that's yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, I can and, chime yeah. in. I saw that live. Um, I saw it live during a summer screening, and as they get closer in the in the bed in Raiders, people in the audience started screaming. Oh yeah. You can hear just women <laughs> erupting in, you got this Indy. <laughs> oh that's great. That's I think, great. I think the I term think after the liner people just erupted in rapturous applause. So it was it was a very cool experience that like compared to some sex scenes there was so little there and yet the reaction it got from just the tension was astronomical yeah it's a good point you know actually there's a technical term for that Maya it's called a nerdgasm <laughs> <laughs> I actually I uh, just a quick tangent I actually uh uh had I, I that's a great moment Maya uh, and there's a there's a moment that was similar to it that uh I had the uh the joy to be at um I get to interview Spielberg once for a screening of uh Raiders of the Lost Ark that we did over at the Regal uh, when I was at the LA Times, and it was a free screening for 700 people. And what it is, I had interviewed him on stage at Comic-Con, the first time he ever did Comic-Con. I think, well, I think he's been back now. Um, and uh, during it, he, we talked and he had such a good time. I said, let's do a Raiders screening, the anniversary. Um, Lucasfilm was busy with Empire Strikes Back, so let's, we'll just do it. I'll get that Oscar print, the, the Academy print. And a month later, he did it. Um, the day of the show, I was so worried he was going to cancel. I, I didn't answer my phone when it rang. Like I was afraid that if his sure. office calls are going to cancel, but if I don't answer, maybe he feels like he has to. Uh, and someone comes up to me and says, oh, there's a call for you on the, the theater. Someone called the theater for you. And I answer in Spielberg's office. I'm like, oh no, he's going to cancel. And he, uh, he said, is it okay if I bring Harrison? 
uh, and I, uh, of course you said no. <laughs> well, I said, yeah, I think we can find a chair. I think, you know, we got an extra chair around here. You know, if not, you know, we'll tell you when you get here, but we'll probably find one. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, he brought Harrison Ford with him. So we, and I'm just beside myself with joy. And, uh, we decided to surprise the audience. And that's what uh, this is a story about is that the moment when Harrison Ford came out. So we're yet 10 minutes into this, Ray, you'll appreciate this because we're backstage trying to orchestrate how to bring him out. That's going to be fun. Uh, and kind of, smart hopefully and i said oh you know uh, it, it's right when that book came out by vic armstrong uh and he's the stuntman who had been james bond and superman and uh indiana jones and i said you know he's got the sword he's swinging the sword around uh in vic armstrong's new book he takes credit for the idea of having indy shoot him just you know kind of with a, a world weary heave of his chest and he pulls out his handgun and, and he shoots the guy and it's says so much about the attitude of the film and the character. And it's one of the great scenes ever. And uh, so on stage, I say, Vic Armstrong's taking credit for it. I've heard Harrison Ford take credit for it. I've heard you take credit for it. Can you tell us right now, once and for all, who came up with that? And he goes, well, I did. And then from the back of the hall, <laughs> you're, that's not how I remember. And Harrison Ford walks out. Ray, you would not believe, I mean, people fell out. They fell oh, out I, of their seats. <laughs> I can't believe it. I wish I was there. That would have it been was, great. It yeah. was one of the most extraordinary things. It's probably the pinnacle of my professional life, like, because I don't know how those, it, those stars aligned that you could get those two guys there when there was no DVD relate, release, no anniversary. Well, there was an anniversary, but no tie-in, nothing that was going to make money. You know, we didn't even advertise Harrison, uh, obviously. So uh, I don't know how it worked out, but it, it, uh, it was like this sublime moment. Um, and that one, we, uh, I actually refer to as Nerdvana. Yeah. So there we got Absolutely. both my, my nerd jokes in. My hat's off to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to think about Close Encounters. And it was such a, um, you know, a different type of science fiction movie than we had seen, obviously, as we've said. Um, but it also, it had some commonalities with the things that, uh, in context of its time. I mean, has anybody ever put together uh, a run of movies more impressive than right. what yeah. Spielberg did? I mean, mm -hmm. like, because you start with Jaws and go forward. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty impressive list. That 10 years or so from Duel, which were I actually clocking sure. with him. Um, and even Sugarland, though, it's not in, it's not kind of in the genre kind of things he was doing. But I, to me, Duel's where I first like, became aware of him yeah but you start you go with jaws and then close encounters um you can skip over 1941 although <laughs> yeah. i think i think there's a lot of really great stuff in 1941 maybe it doesn't work all together but he was the visually he was at sort of the top of his game there and then raiders and then et and and i'll even go um you know as far as uh, it's a different genre, but Empire of the Sun also. I yeah. But, yeah. But you take that period of time. I, I mean, who, who, who did more things like that? And, and they're really good movies. He, he can get slammed for, you know, oh, he and George invented the blockbuster and all this, and people will kind of, can kind of put him down. And my thought is, yeah, I don't think you can put those movies down. <laughs> yeah. Know? I think you do sort your own peril is sort of how I feel about that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, the one of the things too about Close Encounters uh, that is just instantly memorable for people uh, is the music uh, and the, the way that music is used in the story and then also just uh, the John Williams uh, 
you know, amazing contribution. Uh, give me some context in your view, uh, comparing that other 1977 film came, that came out that John Williams had something to do. Uh, you were Julia, what is it? right? Was that That'll be on the yeah. planets. Something. Uh, some, some, someone space. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the the thing about the Star Wars score, which I'm certainly not the first person to say this about, but he revived the classical Hollywood orchestral score in the vein of like Korngold, I think, where um, I'm. I don't know if I'm going to say this word right. I'm not a music guy, but where each character had their own um, leitmotif. Did I, did I say that anywhere? Yeah, no, right? Yeah. That's right. But, but each character basically had a theme. The movie itself had a theme and he just works all of those themes together, depending on the scene. Like you'll hear snippets of Leia's theme and Luke's theme and the overall theme. And it's just, it's spectacular. It's orchestral. It can be played as a concert piece, which he's certainly done by itself. So it's, it's, it's very classic. The Close Encounters score is really different and it's really interesting because the bulk of it until the end is bits and pieces and a lot of it is atonal. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's a little harsh in spots, but just like noises and bits and pieces of stuff. But there's not really, except for the musical notes themselves, there's no discernible theme necessarily. Yeah. As it gets to the back end of the movie, it starts to become much more classic and traditional. And then of course, once you get to the last 30 minutes, it's spectacular, not in the vein of Star Wars, but similarly in this big orchestral full out score. So it goes from weird bits and pieces and it pulls itself together into something spectacular. It's a very creative score, I think. Yeah, it's like a mystery yeah. solved. You know, yes. you're, you're yes. presented all the clues uh, throughout the film and then at the end, they all come together and there's this, for the first time, something unified, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's a and revelation. And, it, and, it, and of course it's, it, I mean, I, I play that music probably as much as I play any that the, the stuff from the end is just amazing. And then he just blasts you in this wonderful way as the movie comes to an end. You know, the, 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 the credits music, you know, that'll send you out floating, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, when you were talking about uh, the, 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 the engine that's driving the character uh, and and comparing it a little bit to Spielberg himself with this project. Um, well, when you were describing that, it actually reminded me more of George Lucas in a way, like because of the the, the singular focus, like uh, yeah. uh, over a period of time. Um, and there's an interesting thing is that uh, with George Lucas going back to Star Wars again and again and, and doing different versions of it and then actually mm -hmm. make trying to squelch earlier versions and, you know, yeah. You know, um, um, and then Spielberg doing a little bit of that himself with Close Encounters. Uh, you know, there was the second uh, version and then the third. Uh, but even those, I think there was only like maybe six minutes running time difference. Although the, the, the yeah. difference is substantive on the screen, but it's yeah, yeah, it's fairly narrow. Um, what do you what 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 what's your take on that? I mean, that's a it's an interesting thing uh, when uh, it's the unfinished canvas, so to speak, and people go back Blade Runner. Yeah, uh, the yeah. abyss. Uh, we've seen this again and again. The Snyder cut. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> um, it does seem to be a really interesting thing that started with those guys. I mean, I think it started with the special edition of Close Encounters of the Third yeah. Kind, which is the full title of that. Um, and yeah, and that weird idea that none of those guys seem to be able to leave those movies alone. Um, I was, I was thinking that, except if you think about all those great sort of science fiction and fantasy films that came out from Star Wars to maybe 
Blade Runner, let's say, that, that great run of movies, except for Raiders, and, and even that's not completely true. Every one of them has had a special edition of some sort. Um, and even Raiders, they keep changing the name on the box, which drives me nuts. Um, and the, now the yeah. font, I saw the new the font, and that was one of the best looking logos yeah. in the history of film. Like, I don't, Absolutely, I don't yeah, yeah. But um, it, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it is the obsessive quality. I, I think they, like I know with uh, Lucas, all he could see in Star Wars was all the compromises. And I guess he just couldn't leave it be, you know? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't quite know. Steven has said a bunch of different things about why they did the special edition. Um, I do think he was not happy with the edit. Mm -hmm. um, I also think he has sort of said in recent years that, that, that the new ending was forced upon him. I, I don't think that was the case. I, I think he was, I think he was, again, part of that just, he just wanted to keep adding more and more to it. I, I do think the the going inside the mothership was a bridge too far, and I'm kind of glad that he saw that because yeah. the the official version that you can mostly see now, which is I guess the official director's edition, which is from '97, um, that that is basically the re-edit of the special edition, but the original ending on it. I think that's probably where I think he wanted to leave it. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's interesting that they they keep playing with those films. And I, you know, I and I suppose, I mean, you know, different points of view on this. I feel that um, like once the movie comes out, that's it. That's the movie that like imprints on everyone. And when you start to change it, like I, I feel like after seeing the special editions of all of these movies, Superman and Star Trek and all of those films, I always prefer the theatrical cut. Right. Maybe Blade Runner is the exception to that, yeah, yeah. but but I because I feel like those are the movies that grabbed us, and then everything else is this variation that I always feel a little pulled out of it. Yeah, you know, um, and Steve's a little I, indulgent sometimes too because they yeah. go a little too far with, in almost every case. Well, almost. when when they start adding things, also that like I I don't particularly like the the special edition of Star Wars, but one of the reasons I don't like it is they start changing the visual style. Yeah. to make it more modern to whenever that film was done. So there were effects works in the special edition of Star Wars that you couldn't have done in 77. That's right. And I don't, you know, I mean, I know this right on top of it, but I imagine even if you're not paying that much attention, it's distracting a little sure. bit. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the pro for George, I feel almost a little bad because I think he doesn't realize that the movie's really good and it was really good the way it was, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like it's well, never it's, been as good, you know? Yeah, well, I think yeah. with him, it's, you know, uh, and he's very different than Steven. And I think it's fascinating. Their friendship fascinates me, you know, because yeah. um, I got, I asked Steven once about that and he's, you know, he says that they talk on the phone all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I said, can you, what, wait, stop. That, tell me, what, how's that, what's that sound like? Like, how's that go? And he's like, well, it goes, uh, and he, did, he proceeded to go, um, hey, hey, Steven, it's George, how you doing? Uh, so I, it's kind of crazy to, just to think about those two guys on the phone together, but uh, um, George is uh, such an engineer, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, he likes ideas more than people. I mean, and he can't, and like any engineer, like if you build a car, the first thing you're doing is troubleshooting it for the next model. So I think he yeah. really sees it as it's, you know, this is just the next year's model of Star Wars. I think he, he actually, like, he walked into a theater and heard how crappy it sounds. And he spent the next, how many years of his life? Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to make movies. I'm going to make theater sound better. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. this is a guy who can't get past like 
the uh, engineering flaw, you know, he, uh, he wants to make it better and stuff. Um, so that's why he does it and, and influenced Stephen, I think. And um, Stephen has said that he regretted going back and changing the, the walkie-talkie, uh, the guns to walkie-talkies, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think he took out the word, uh, was it Dick Breath or something he, like that? So. He took that and he took out the terrorist reference. Exactly. And he, and he also added in a bunch of CGI ET, which, and and now you can't get that version anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. Which I, I ET should be left alone. It is. It yeah. Is, it is perfect as it is. You know? Now I have a controversial opinion that I think okay. that there's only one film that deserves someone to go back and actually digitally do the things that they're doing, mm. and it, it's I get a lot of people get very upset when I say this, mm. but the Shark and Jaws. If there was ever a film where you could go back and just digitally put over a decent looking shark. And that would and it would significantly change the film, uh, but I think it would actually help me stay in the film because I still have a problem when I see that shark when it comes up at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, it just looks so land shark, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I my my objection to that would be I've never seen a convincing CGI shark to me. Like, um, you know, the, it's a T Rex without legs. Come on, yeah. can do it. <laughs> well, on. I'm sure they can do it, but I've never seen them do Because I, I think I think it's a, a problem with they never stop twitching and moving and, and whatever, because I think, I, I don't know this, I, I'm, I don't work in that, but I imagine if you don't put a lot of movement into it, it maybe it, maybe it stops being convincing. But one of the great things in Star Wars is, um, uh, and I'll, I'll go nerdy because I actually know the Please. name, but like, you know, when, when they go into the spaceport and you just see the, the, um, the lizard thing now, I'm blanking oh, yeah. his name. Yeah. And it's just standing there because it's a model. Right. And yeah. it's just, and you, and all I kept thinking when I saw the film the first time is, wow, that place is so hot. Nothing's moving. And then when they went back oh. and now the thing is scratching and it's, in, and, and now your eye goes to it in a way that I think I think it didn't like it, it was so That's much more effective I found but right. you know and I, I I'm a little old school that way I don't yeah. like the enhancements you know no no Even, it's a good but, it's a good call but I get you with the shark <laughs> you know he's a, he's a little jolly like, in the end there. but it's, it's, I it's, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, with a, you're exactly right too I, the the best representation of animals or a living creature that I remember just because it was so seamless was in Life of Pi. Yeah, I, I thought that the yeah. tiger in Life of Pi, I just completely bought. And, yeah. and yeah. it didn't seem visually needy in the way that you're describing, yeah. like something that demands attention. You know? Yeah, they didn't overdo it. You know where I thought it worked really well too? The final, uh, final chapter of the recent Planet of the Apes movies. Oh yeah. Where there was one point I was watching it and what went through my mind is I just completely forgot these were artificial creatures. I, I didn't feel that so much in the first two because I don't think the technology had gotten there. That's right. But the last one, I thought, oh, there's a talking orangutan and he's just talking. And 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 then you, you catch yourself, you go, oh wait, that's really cool. That's yeah. the first time that kind of thing has been, I feel truly convincing for me. Yeah. yeah. The um, Ridley Scott uh, with Blade Runner and and not only has he gone back uh, doing multiple versions of that, but he, he with Prometheus has gone back to Alien, you know, in a different way, you know, and yeah. maybe Blade Runner also because it mentions the Tyrell Corporation and such. But he uh, he said the interesting thing, you know, he studied painting um, and he was in a class uh, uh, with um, uh, David Hockney, 
They were classmates, okay. Okay. which is sort of a fascinating thing for me yeah. to think about. Like, I'd love to interview the two of them together uh, about visual style. But uh, the reason that Ridley, I mean, he's as good a painter as he is a filmmaker, really, but he, he, he stopped, he, he quit painting. And, he, and the reason he gives is, uh, he says that because he couldn't finish a canvas, he would always keep going back and sure. back and back. And then the frustration of going too far. Um, and that, that, I mean, it seems like the perfect metaphor to what the experience of all three of these guys in, in different degrees and different ways and for different reasons. But that, uh, that tendency of all is to add one paintbrush yeah. stroke yeah. too many, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I haven't, I'm not a particularly good painter, but I have been, when I have tried to paint, I've been guilty of that. Like, whoops, just ruined it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I enjoy the process of painting more than I enjoy the finished product. So I always paint until it's bad. Yeah. Because I, I'm enjoying sure, it so much. Sure, sure. So to me, it's like eating a cake. It never looks good at the well, end. What, one of the things <laughs> I'm grateful for with some of the books I've done is that I had a deadline because I think otherwise I would just, I, and the truth is I'm still rewriting them. <laughs> so, you know, but nobody knows it. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the walkie talkies are coming out. Uh, you're going to replace all the guns. Sure, sure. Um, all right. So with, we'll go back to Kong for a second. Okay. Since we're having such a good time, we'll, we'll bring it back to Kong. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the legacy of the, the 70s Kong version. Uh, mm -hmm. Was it 76? 76, right. 76. Yeah. Uh, the bicentennial year. Tell me what you think of the legacy of that film is. It, it, because of the Peter Jackson uh, version that uh, uh, followed it, and of course, because of the original and, and everything that that accomplished as a pop culture moment, uh, what, what do you see as the, the takeaway now uh, for the second film? Right. Well, for the Kong legend, if you will, it is actually the film that put the Beauty and the Beast story into Kong, mm -hmm. because Kong is Kong is always referred to as a Beauty and the Beast tale, yeah. and and in my understanding of that, Beauty and the Beast is about when the beauty sees the beauty that's in the beast, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, that that to me is what that fairy tale is about, and the best movie versions of it, from the the French version even into the Disney musicals. The original Kong is not that, even though the the, the denim character constantly says the theme is Beauty and the Beast. It's really more Hercules because it's 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 the Beast brought down by his love for beauty, which is not Beauty and the Beast. Samson, Samson Delilah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Samson. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And, and the, the first Kong, what people tend to forget about it until you rewatch it, is that um, Fay Ray's character is just frightened of Kong. Every time he grabs hold of her, whether it's on the island or in New York, she screams. Girl and can she, scream. She, right. And, Girl can and scream. She can scream. <laughs> <laughs> she actually screamed in 40 movies over the years from just those screams in, in that. In that it picture. echoes still. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is when Helen Mack screams in Son of Kong, it's Faye's scream coming out of her mouth. Is that right? Yeah, which is really funny. That's like Johnny um, Weissmiller's uh, Tarzan start, yeah, used ex forever. Exactly. Right? And, um, and, you know, and, it, and the 33 film works spectacularly. But but over the years, people sort of remembered something in that film that isn't there. The 70s film puts that in there because the, the first film is a monster movie in which the girl is abducted. I mean, yeah. it, that's sort of a trope from that time. So it went in there. The 70s one, 
he, he takes her and they develop a connection over the course of the film, sometimes really subtly and sometimes a little maybe ham-fistedly, but it's there. And, and in a strange way, I, f I like find the ending of the 33 film sort of um, majestically tragic. Yeah. But I find the ending of the 70s one really emotional because, yeah. because you know, you buy it, or at least I buy it. And, and it is all about how she's afraid of him, eventually comes to realize, you know, that, that he's got a soft heart, if you will. And then when they kill him in the end, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it actually made that theme in the original film, it actually worked it into the drama. Mm. So much so that Peter Jackson pretty much just ported that over into his film. He did it a little differently, but pretty much he takes that big chunk of the 70s Kong and works it into a story because I think that's the story that's in everyone's mind now. I don't think you could do Kong without that now. Yeah. But, but that was the main contribution narratively of the 70s Kong. The other thing that's really, I think, important about that film um, two things in terms of special effects. It was literally a transition film. It was the last major studio film to, to use visual effects in the traditional way they had been done since really effects films got started. Um, because right, uh, Kong came out in, at Christmas of 76, Star Wars right. opened in May. Once Star Wars opened, then we were into the Doug Trumbull, John Dykstra motion control era and effects were never approached the same way again. They did use old techniques, but they used them in this new way. So the visual part of Kong, which is uh, done mostly by uh, Frank Vanderveer and a few other folks, um, is the last of that. At the same time, it's the birth of part of the new generation because it's the first uh, special effects film to make full use uh, to, uh, of an animatronic character. Uh -huh. of makeup effects that were me mechanized to create a character. And while some of the blue screen work in Kong 76 is a little dodgy at the end, some of it in the beginning is, is spectacular. Like yeah. it's almost seamless. But um, the, the animatronic stuff, you cannot argue with how effective those masks are. Yeah. And that is a wonderful combination of, of Rick Baker mm -hmm. and, and of... Um, I should say Carlo Rambaldi, but really Isidore Rapponi, who was Carlo Rambaldi's mechanical guy, and he and Baker worked together. Oh. Um, and, and to me, it's as good and as revolutionary in its way as the, the stop motion effects in the original Kong were. And, and I, I think for those reasons, that film, that film sticks around. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting thing that, um, and as you explain that, the, the, it occurs to me that the, the 70s cinema had such a, a, a dark and cynical yes. edge or yes. possibility, you know, like, you know, um, and into a little bit of the early 80s, uh, you know, Peter Jackson's Kong, you, it could be more um, digitally uh, specific about its scary parts, but its emotional components aren't nearly as dark. No, I think as no. as uh, yeah. the '70s, and, and you and you look at movies like, you know, with like Network uh, or uh, you know, there's so many, you know, any really so many films. I mean, Taxi Driver, so many films in the, the '70s that had this really took things into an, 
uh, sort of an edgy um, and kind of ugly moments, you know, yes. and, I, and Hollywood is, it really gives us that in those kind of big movies now, spectacle yeah. films like and, uh, Kong. And the 70s Kong, that's a big component of it. I mean, there, there's a cynicism in, in, uh, in the original film, the, the, the people who go on location, it's a documentary film expedition. In the, in the 70s one, it's an oil company expedition because they're seeking essentially to exploit the resources and they end up exploiting Kong. So there is that theme in the film, but also the very end in the original film, when he takes her up on top of the Empire State Building, it's like, we gotta kill this thing. So let's go do it. And everybody, yeah. And, and the movie doesn't question that. In, in the 70s version, Jeff Bridges' character tells them uh, he's the guy who can figure out where Kong's gonna go. And he says, you gotta capture him. And, and the government agrees to capture him and then slaughters him. Yeah. And the thing is, it's very post-Watergate. It's very yeah. 70s. It's not an easy watch, right. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and it, it adds to the tragic part of it, which is they are, they are literally, I mean, they taxi driver him. There's so much blood in that last scene yeah. or the, the, in, the, in the top of the World Trade Center sequence. So it, it, it is a film of its time and it, it doesn't shy away from that. I, yeah. My feeling is I know that film gets knocked a lot, but I, for me, it's my second favorite of the Kong films. And I, I, I understand its flaws very well, yeah. but I do think it's a, I do think it's um, an underestimated film. I think, I think it is, it has a lot of good things in it. It may not all hold together as well as the original film does. And I wouldn't argue that it does, but I think it's a worthy film. Yeah. I think it's gotten kind of a lousy reputation. that's kind of undeserved. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's some goofy stuff in it, but there's some goofy stuff in a lot of things. Yeah, that <laughs> first know? Superman movie, like, yeah. I mean, people, they, they, they're very conveniently kind of, like, look away at certain parts, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. they ignore parts of it. Um, I, I didn't realize it until you said it, but I, this is, I mean, that the second King Kong is really, it's Cool Hand Luke with a monkey. I had no idea. Like, <laughs> That's good. I never thought of that. You know, You're right. Yeah, yeah. It really gets that, yeah. that sort of savage betrayal of uh, authority at the end, you know, the author yeah. authoritative sort of uh, cruelty. Um, yeah, but he could eat a lot of eggs, I bet. <laughs> he, he could probably win the contest. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a sure. whole lot of eggs. Um, was there anything in the new film that you found um, uh, that surprised you in a pleasant way? Uh, was there any uh, nuance? The, the part I loved the most in it, and I wish they had done more with it, is the part where they established the little deaf girl has somehow in, in her interaction has taught him sign language and he can communicate with her. I wished more of the movie was about that because I, yeah. I think Kong works best when there's a connection with the human characters. I mean, obviously in all three of the major versions of the story, it's the weird love story with the girl. And I, and I, I think they, they were onto something really interesting there. Yeah. And um, one, of my, one of the things I, I didn't particularly like in the Peter Jackson version of the, movie, of, of the story is that it didn't add much to the legend. Um, the only it really it took elements from the 33 and the 76 and it and it and it put them together, but it didn't add much. The one thing it added that I thought was terrific, and it's a it's only done in a like a 15 second shot. But when Kong enters his cave, you see skeletons of other Kongs, and you realize, oh, this character is the last of its species. So it adds an element of tragedy to it. And I thought the new one 
added a nice piece too, which is we could communicate with Kong if we wanted to. I mean, it's, you know, Coco the gorilla or whatever. That was my favorite part of it. And I, what I thought when it was over is I wish they had focused much more on that. I I think it would have been, you could have still had just the monster fights, but you might've had a better human story because the human stuff is, is kind of a mess. I think in that film. Yeah. 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 No, it's a good point. And, and um, it's visually, uh, our heart kind of rises a little bit, I think, when we see um, something that's very, very powerful or very, very scary do something yes. very, very gentle yes. with with something smaller than it. Uh, like I, even like in you know, you think Frankenstein with the little yep. girl, um, you know that scene and 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 how that sort of tugs at us. Uh, um, that I think that kind of speaks a little bit to that, maybe. Very you know? much so. Yeah. I mean, I think the great thing about all the classic monsters is that there's something human in there. Like mm-hmm. you said, Fr- Frankenstein really just wants, he wants to be accepted and human. And, and I'm, you're gonna get a lot of calls. I know it's Frankenstein's monster. Um, yeah, and yeah, and, yeah, and even know. Dracula, not necessarily in the book, but in most of the films is trying to have a human connection. And the Wolfman is a tragic character and Kong has, you know, Kong falls in love with Fay Ray and he gets killed because of it, or Jessica Lange. Um, I think you need that in it. And a lot of modern monster stuff, they're all like these weird lizardy creatures, but I don't care about them. There's no human element. And I, and I said in Godzilla versus Kong, you said, oh my God, you guys could, I mean, I had never thought of that. I said Kong and sign language and Coco the gorilla, that, what sure. a great idea, you know? Yeah. And maybe, maybe they'll do something with it. Another movie. Yeah, maybe Planet of the Apes, the, 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 the most recent um, yes. iteration of it might have influenced that as well, you know? That's or, true, yeah, that's probably um, true. You should have sent Matthew Broderick to go talk to, to Kong <laughs> and he, everything would have been fine. They could have figured this out a long time ago. There you go. Uh, um, and for you, um, uh, when you when you look at the, the, the 70s, uh, the cast is fascinating too, you know, and at that point in their careers. Uh, I know Jeff Bridges, I saw him talking once um, about his different roles and, and he mentioned that the, uh, he went to uh, uh, Chimino and said that he, you know, I, I just don't know this character. I don't know what it is. I don't know what, and, and he said, whatever you do is who he is. Like mm-hmm. no one's seen this before. Um, it's a, it's an intriguing uh, tidbit for me, just because I'm sort of fascinated by Jeff Bridges's arc and path through Hollywood. I think it's the most the longest Hollywood career of anyone because his first role was when he was six months old. Right, was, right, like, yes. Carried across the screen. I'm like, wow, this is a yeah. guy that's like yeah. he's uh, put some time in. Um, so I kind of like it for that, but. Uh, when you think about that cast, uh, what, what's your takeaway on, um, you know, who they were at that moment and, and who might be an interesting part of the ensemble that uh, sure. most po- folks might not think of? Well, I'll tell you the one people never realize who's in there is uh, John Lone from The Last Emperor. Oh, he, wow. Yeah, he's the, he plays, um, he, he has, the, they, they call him the cook, but you never actually see him cooking, but he's a member of the ship's crew. And there's a funny scene where he's giving Charles Grodin a massage, like, a, and Grodin, like, by some way, and, and you just see Lone, like, kind of waving it, you know, he's ticked off at him. But yeah, he's the one nobody realizes in that, is in that film. Um, you know, Jeff was in that film he had done all these kind of really cool supporting parts. This was his shot at being a lead. You know, the character, you know, th- th- there's a weird beard in it. I can never figure out his beard in that film. Because uh, <laughs> I've seen him with a beard in other films. He looks great. He's a little little off in that film. Um, it's, of course, Jessica Lange's debut. 
And, um, you know, it's a weird thing. And Jeff himself had this thought, this is not my thought, this is his, you know, the character is, is, is kind of ditzy mm-hmm. um, a bit, which yeah. is kind of funny. People say, well, oh, it's, you know, she plays her too, like, like a little, um, again, ditzy, I guess is the best word. And, you know, that's so not how Faye Ray played it in the original film. But if you actually look at the original film, <laughs> um, you know, Faye is so uh, innocent, like almost naive to the point of it's hard to believe she's that naive. No way. A little more, a little more um, common and accepted in the 30s. But basically, Faye, uh, Jessica's playing basically the same kind of thing. The other thing is she was told by the director uh, in the early scenes that he wanted her to imitate Marilyn Monroe. And she actually does a fairly good Marilyn Monroe interpretation it's just that I'm not sure that was, I, I, I wouldn't have given that direction is my feeling. But as the movie gets on, she finds her feet and she does, I think, pretty well by the end. And, and Jeff Bridges' point when I talked to him was, he said, you know, everybody, she did that so well, everybody thought she was kind of a dumb blonde, if you'll forgive right. me, because of course you see she's anything but that. Yeah. So I think it's a better performance than people give it credit for. Um, but, you know, and I find Broden very funny in the movie. And I know yeah. that some people don't care for that. Yeah. Um, I know Barry Diller didn't care for that. He, he, he really didn't like that Groden was playing it with humor. Groden's point was, he said, you got to wait an hour for Kong to show up. I got to give you something. So I'm going to give you some comedy. Um, but even he pulls back from it. There's a great moment where uh, the captain of the ship, played by the wonderful character actor John Randolph, says, you know, <laughs> my men are cut off back there, you know, and we got to rescue them. And, and Groden's too busy focusing on capturing Kong. And Groden just looks at him and he goes, don't worry about it. And my thought is for all the humor, that's when you realize, oh, this guy's awful, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then he, he gets his just desserts. Um, yeah, yeah, Groden, yeah. he's got such interesting shading. Yeah, so. yeah, and you know, there are moments he's probably too broad, but I don't know, I, my feeling is when you're too broad and I'm laughing, that's okay. It's the same knock people have with Gene Hackman and Superman. Well, he's, he's way too broad, which tonally is probably correct. But I do laugh when I watch him. So, you know, okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know. yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, jumping back to, to Spielberg, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at his films, I mean, he, he has such a, a towering uh, spot in science fiction, just in general. You know, you, you, you look at what he's done. Um, although it's interesting, randomly, I think that before Ready Player One, I don't know that he ever had a shot in a film that was on another planet. Right, right. Which yeah. is kind of strange. Like, I mean, he had aliens come here, but yeah. unlike George Lucas, he hasn't really gone to other places, which I, I think is kind of interesting because um, uh, he's made an awful lot of movies. But when you think of his science fiction films, you know, um, do you think that that's primarily what he's going to be remembered for? I mean, I, the answer would have been a, a, a resounding yes at one point, but I think now with things like, you know, uh, I mean, obviously Schindler's List, uh, Munich, Catch Me If You Can, uh, Saving Private Ryan, he's, he's gone so far afield of the uh, sci-fi fantasy adventure yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of balance those? Um, it'll be hard to, to know, I guess. I, I mean, I think the, the films when you think of Steven Spielberg, the ones that I think these days, um, people, the sort of the general audience is going to think of, they're always going to think of Jaws. He's never yeah. going to not be the guy who made Jaws. I think, um, I think they will also think about E.T. Um, and I think they will think about Schindler's List. Uh, 
those are the, the three I think that are going to you know be the ones that people really go. Also Raiders. Yeah. Although the thing that's interesting about Raiders, I mean, I, I love Raiders and I love the Indiana Jones movies and I know they're doing another one, which he's involved with. Don't threaten but, me. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, the thing is, it's funny. I don't know if that character, like I don't know if younger people know Raiders very well. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think if you said Indiana Jones, people would have an image, but I don't know if those movies have lasted as in the same way. I mean, they've lasted for movie people, of course, okay. but, um, but I think the general public is always going to think of Jaws and they're going to think of E.T. and they're going to think of Schindler's. And, yeah. you know, we'll see what I, I'm actually really looking forward to this one he's doing now. Where he's, he's finally doing the movie about his childhood that he's been talking about for 40 years. I, I cannot wait. Yeah. Because I think an important thing about his science fiction stuff and, you know, and even even Jaws, I think. And he got kind of tagged with this in a way like there were so many movies after E.T. that imitated E.T. Right that it became this kind of weird caricature of suburban life. I mean, all right. of those 80s films where it's kids and they're in the suburbs, but it's right. some kind of cartoony version of the suburbs. Right. One of the things and, that and I take think- take it up is, to Super 8 and Stranger Things. And, ex I mean, exactly. If anything, it's bigger influence now than ever. Yeah, but it's a world that I don't think anybody gets right except him. Hmm. One of the things I really love about Close Encounters is that I, I was a kid in that time where he made that film. Right. And I don't think anybody has ever nailed real American suburban life, not, not cartoony version, right. but all that stuff in the house and the neighborhood, it just felt like what life felt like to me then. And right. I grew up in, in, in the suburbs, um, uh, not the cookie cutter kind of suburbs, but you know, outside of New York. And, and he just, nailed that yeah. and there's a shot in the film when all the lights are going out all over the place and they have a mcdonald's and <laughs> the way the, yeah. McDonald's, the mcdonald's is lit from inside and you hear on the radio somebody's car radio is playing and they're playing more than a feeling i think uh you know which is you know you couldn't get more in 1976 than that and then the lights go out just the way it is that it that feels real yeah and there's a when they have all the the family dinner there's a there's a picture on the table my mom had that picture <laughs> my, and and my thought is it's just so recognizable and i think jaws is the same way like the yeah. home stuff it doesn't take up a lot of jaws but like that's what a that's what a family house really feels like yeah it makes you really care yeah you really do and makes it real and and i think et has that also the problem I think with ET is it got so copied that it sort you look at it now and you're like, well, that's like every 80s suburban yeah, movie, yeah. but it isn't really, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, maybe the, the dog sleeping in the bed and rolling over is a little cartoony, but everything else feels really real. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. You were talking before about like the sexual stuff. I, I don't know where he comes from with all of that. It doesn't seem to be a big part of, yeah. of how he deals with the world but he gets kids and moms and dads and suburban life. That's, he's alive with that stuff. I, yeah. I, that's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to this new film. Cause I, if he goes back to it and it makes it as, as authentic, it'll be wonderful, whatever it is. You know? Yeah, no, that's super well said. That's, yeah. that's really, really well said. Uh, with, uh, with ET, you know, it, it definitely has that. I think, I wonder if like um, the fact that we hadn't really had a filmmaker that young uh, making movies that big 
before and, and movies are such uh, the currency of youth i mean like you know uh, especially from that era on i mean the, the audience really things are geared toward young people and it was the first time a young person had made big movies like yes yeah. you yeah. know in a way like so he was still closer to the experience you know like than um you know than the people that preceded him um with uh you know with close encounters also um just wonder the the way that it looks and sounds i mean it, it feels so different uh, and, and it has so much influence and we still see a copy today um but it, it cre it's almost becomes like a, a museum piece that locks people in uh yeah, yeah. if you look at the brian singer uh when he did the superman returns i mean that's probably the most mm -hmm. uh reverential film in history like i mean he just yeah. loved that donner movie and he loved the everything about it so much that it it smothers the film almost. You know, I, like, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I think that that we kind of got close to that uh, with Super Eight, but JJ did such a good job with the film and had such a great young cast. I think that movie actually turned out pretty great. But it's it's probably the second most reverential film, and uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, that's got to be a weird feeling for Spielberg. You know, uh, even if he produced the film, um, just to to have. Um, these acolytes. I mean, so many people that, that follow his, his path so much, you know. Well, it was one of the interesting things I thought in Ready Player One, which is there are very few references to Steven Spielberg <laughs> and George Lucas movies. And I thought, <laughs> how on earth do you do the 80s without referencing those two guys, you know? And it's funny, it's just in his film, you know. Um, it's funny. You're right. It's probably yeah. the, only, uh, the only, every other movie acknowledges them. Yeah, yeah. Ad, ad nauseum. <laughs> Right, except that and, one. and his doesn't. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's very and I, funny. And I heard something. I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard like basically he couldn't get the rights from George to do Star Wars stuff. <laughs> oh, that like, can't be right. That can't I, be right. I don't. Probably not. But I had, I had heard that somewhere. Because um, uh, Darth Vader. I mean, well, yeah, Yoda popped up in ET. I, I yeah, yeah. he probably had to get permission for that. Yeah. And yeah, then, well, I, I think George liked that a lot. He was he was a big fan of that. I think. Yeah. For but sure. yeah, I mean, that's those guys invented, they didn't invent science fiction films, but I think they invented the modern science fiction film yeah. and everything that has come after Star Wars and Close Encounters, there isn't anything that's happened since that I think you can't track to those two films in some way or another. Um, the sensibility, the approach, I mean, even George, I mean, he really made the first, well, maybe Forbidden Planet, but I'd say the first real space opera, although Forbidden Planet isn't really space opera, um, no. you know, on a big scale, you know, before then it had been, um, you know, yeah, Flash uh, Gordon and Flash Gordon, you know, serials and, and B movies, but even yeah. B movies didn't really do space opera that much. Yeah. Um, they did like cheese ball sci-fi, but that's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The rhythms. Yeah. And, and, and I think both the, the content and the stylistic approach, everybody owes everything to those two guys. And yeah, and, um, yeah I mean, how do, you, how do you even begin to, to, to estimate that influence, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny because I think you and I are a generation where we consider Close Encounters to be uh, a major, major work by him. When you were mentioning the ones that he'll be remembered for, the one that always surprises me that I never include, and even though empirically I know I should, is Jurassic Park. Like to yeah. me, that, that doesn't even feel like, I mean, I know it's 
it's an important film and, and it, it, it was a huge step forward in digital effects and, and it spawns, I mean, I don't even know how many sequels there yeah. are at this point, um, but it just doesn't feel uh, to me like the others. And, and I think one of the reasons, it's the same reason I have mixed feelings about the, the uh, King Kong that Peter Jackson did, mm-hmm. is it, it seems to be every scene is driven by, it was, it was selected and included as an opportunity to do a certain thing visually. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's orchestrated by its effects as opposed to being orchestrated by a story or by character. Yeah, unlike the other films that we're talking about, you know, like you've really. That's why I've always keep them at arm's length. Like when I'm watching those films, that I can't completely let go, um, or I, I don't have quite the emotional stake. Maybe that's really what I what I'm saying. Well, I think that I think it's not. There's nothing personal in it. I think the personal yeah. part is he loved dinosaurs and I think he really loved the idea of yeah. the effects work. But like, you don't care about the characters in Jurassic Park. And I, I, you know, I can't speak for him, but I don't think he cared about them that much either. He, he made them a lot more human than they were in the book, you know, which he did with Jaws also. Um, but in Jaws, I, I don't know what it was, uh, but it was something where again you felt the you felt the real life in it the, the and and you don't really feel the real life in jurassic park it is interesting until you until you brought it up i thought oh yeah that's right i skipped that one didn't i yeah um, but I, I do it, too yeah very it's, considerate. it's not one of his that i go back to a lot yeah. you know um because i i think it's also a film where you pretty much get out of it what you get out of it the first time you see it right i feel that way about some of the other stuff like um Minority Report, I've never, that's another one of the science fiction ones. That's not one I've really felt the desire to go back to. No. And I, I, I have mixed feelings about it as a film, but I'd say the only other one of his that comes close to that, it doesn't quite have the obsessive quality, but I think he did a good job of, of rooting War of the Worlds in real life. Yeah. Um, you know, like that, that like he kind of got a hold of, of of that neighborhood and that feel and everything. And it felt a little more grounded in real life than some of like Jurassic Park isn't particularly. I think the, the difference for War of the Worlds is, I think he genuinely felt this way, but I, I wasn't ready for a, a cynical, depressed <laughs> Spielberg sci-fi film. But yeah, uh, yeah. But it, it's, yeah. yeah. It, with a few exceptions, it's a pretty good movie, but it's not, um, I don't, I think there was a joy he brought to it. Like Close Encounters, people don't remember this now because especially after E.T., we had so many friendly aliens. Aliens in movies before that were monsters who were going to kill you. He made it this joyous thing. Um, That's really revolutionary and people don't remember now, you know? E.T. and E.T. also, like, right, you know, uh, um, he had benign aliens back to back, you know, um, in, in a way. Um, and we hadn't seen that. Yeah, so War of the Worlds yeah. felt like... Oh, yeah. wait, other guys do this. You don't like, do this. Oh, you we, do the other thing. You're supposed to be the UN. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you were like the United Nations <laughs> of the space. Um, the, would, have you ever seen, or has anyone ever seen the, the Harrison Ford deleted scene from E.T.? Have you ever seen it? I haven't. I'm trying to think. I've seen a picture from it. Really? I haven't even um, seen that. Yeah. It, well, the funny thing is the picture has him in it, but in the actual scene, I know you didn't see him. Because oh. you don't you, you don't see any adults. You only see adults from the waist down until you see Peter Coyote at the end. So I think it was just like maybe his his hand and his over the shoulder and all that oh. kind of thing. Oh, there's so a scene, yeah, there's a scene where you see Elliot being dragged away from the classroom 
um, after he causes all the mayhem. And the scene with Harrison Ford was he was the principal of yeah. the school. I think that's him pulling Elliot away. I'm not oh. completely sure. But uh, but the scene that they cut was, again, Harrison from the waist down. So I don't Oh, know. okay. Because I thought it was, I, my understanding was that when he appeared, people cheered and it was, and, and that was why Spielberg took it out. So mm. because he was so recognizable that, and he was coming off of the, he was the hottest movie star in the world. Absolutely. And then it was this moment when emotionally it was, uh, uh, discordant with what he was sure. looking for. I, I hadn't heard that, but that would make sense. That that if that's if they did see him, I can understand why. Yeah, would take that out. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheer, yeah. yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you you can't just sort of see him pass by. <laughs> what? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's that's that's pretty funny. Um, you know, with Minority Report, my big problem with that film, uh, it's the I it's I put it on the in the same category as Rear Window. Not that I'm comparing them artistically or as a film uh, achievement but they both have one such vital flaw in them to me that I, I can't watch them without rolling my eyes like uh, and I love Rear Window but I also I mean uh, here's a guy he's he's laid up right there's a car mm -hmm. uh, he's hit by a race car he breaks his leg he's he's laid up Grace Kelly oh that's nice that works mm -hmm. out well and he looks out to his window and he sees his neighbor start to kill or kill or cover up the murder of his wife and he's doing this through a telephoto lens of a camera and he's a photojournalist so he's been trained i mean he shoots race cars so he obviously has quick reactions he's instinctive the camera's part of him and he's looking through it and there's a guy doing something and he just needs to get proof that this guy's doing something and if there's just some way to show people what this guy's doing right now oh my god look what that guy's doing if there's only some way that people will never believe me he's got a camera like right. i mean it's You're just right. the most yeah i, I, yeah. I, I it just it's hard for me to watch it and when my in minority report the thing is is you know the the great ethical dilemma of how can you charge people with crimes that they haven't committed just charge them with fucking attempted murder mm -hmm. you don't have to charge them with murder yeah. stop charging them with murder right. you stopped it it's not a murder <laughs> it's an attempted murder just, that's a good just point. do that you know it's a, and it just yeah. becomes so frustrating for me that i uh mm -hmm. i i sit in theaters and i do what i just did yeah during yeah. the movie and you know people don't like that so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that film too also like you have to commit totally the, to the dystopian point of view and, mm. and I, I mean again I don't know him personally but I, I don't I don't think that's in his nature so oh, you know, he, he has the end where the, the woman's in the cottage by the sea and even War of the Worlds which is pretty grim yeah. in the end like oh no the kids survived and the family I, I, it's, yeah. it's a little bit like um, like Dick Donner you know like he's such a sweetheart and he yeah. he is a guy who loves the world and loves people and, he, and, and yeah and it makes him perfect for superman um it is interesting that he took on lethal weapon you know at which you know if you've ever read the original draft you know it ends pretty darkly and nope he's gonna have a meet for christmas and then he turns the rest of them into comedies and he does that because it's just it's, it's, too dark. it's where his heart he's not a dark guy and i don't think steve yeah. and i and I, I love both of them for that you know um yeah. but it's when when steven schindler's list is, is is maybe the exception but again personal personal Very. connection you know yeah. when he does dark and grim and other things it, i don't again I'm, I'm i'm saying this like I'm, I'm best buddies with him or something um it doesn't seem in his nature no no you know? i think you're exactly right i think you're yeah. exactly right it, it um I hadn't really framed it in that way, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. And yeah. it's when people make their most personal film, they, they they can kind of separate from their sensibilities a little bit. 
I mean, like yeah. Tim Burton with Big Fish is so different than every other movie that he ever made. Yeah. And it's right after his father's death and it was his way of dealing with it. Um, and Spielberg, Schindler's List, I, uh, and, and Saving Private Ryan in a different way. I think yeah. that those were his, his acknowledgements of what he considered important in the world. Like, I, I need to do a message now, you know, like, yeah. uh, and this is, this is my uh, responsibility. Those are responsibility films to him. Um, and they take him places that are far darker than his, yeah. his sensibilities would usually allow. Yes, and the place where it, it is authentic. Um, I mean, I like Saving Private Ryan a lot, yeah, but it, it had, it's a little um, World War II cliche movie in the middle right. maybe, but that opening and even the battle in the end, like that's where his heart was because, you know, that, and again, if you can, you know, he is very much a child of World War II yeah. Those things are very much, he grew up with that imagery and those, and I think those ideals, and I, I don't think there's a better tribute to the people who fought in World War II than those opening 20 minutes of Private Ryan, though incredibly hard to watch, yeah. but you feel like you're right there. I, I think that's the personal part, which is he was paying tribute to his father's generation, his, and, and I think a generation he was very, very close to. And I think that's why that's authentic. You know, the yeah. middle of the movie feels a little bit like a little obligatory, but then the end, the, the end is, is devastating. You know, yeah. um, that battle is, is it, I mean, he didn't shy away. I mean, this is why he is, he is a really talented filmmaker. Like people will sometimes dismiss him as, you know, he's the, you know, the blockbuster guy. I always think that's a strange comment, but but look at those films like what there is nobody more natural and better at doing this than he is when he wants to yeah you know yeah it's interesting that he hasn't directed i, I think because of that the that people do discount him sometimes um in hollywood and i think it's their way of dealing with his success yes. like there's, there's no other way for them to frame it than it's well it's got to be it makes him um diminished because yeah. it's he's too successful like that's yeah. the only thing they can say about it's because it's just, mm -hmm. how else do you com compute it or uh, compete with it um, but, uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I think that it's hurt his actors in Oscar races, for instance. I think there's only been three performances, Oscar performances that he's directed, Oscar winners, actors. <clears> there's <throat> been quite a few nominations, but I, I think part of it is that people, they, they just want to dismiss his work as, oh, yeah. that's, you know, Steven, and he's just doing a watered down version of, of something that's important. And, and yeah. I don't, I think he deserves a lot better than that. I think so. I think I th and I think in all of his like I mean again nobody has a, nobody has a perfect record. So does he have some films that work better than others? Of course he does. But his best films are some of the best films we have we have, and because they take place, a lot of them in science fiction, in fantasy, in in suburbia, like in things that people consider. Yeah. I guess I don't know plastic or, or not real it's like well you can be real in anything like yeah. I always find when people you know I'm getting a little off track here but one of the mm -hmm. things I didn't like about Birdman from a few years ago yeah you know I, truthfully there's a lot I didn't like about it but one of the things I didn't like its idea that there was acceptable art and unacceptable art mm -hmm. you know that that like that a, a, a play based on a cult novel is acceptable a superhero movie is not um I think you you run the risk of being a really bad film snob if you don't pay. like there can be a wonderful film of any type and in any generation um you know Superman is a superhero movie and it's got its flaws but you will not find a more honestly optimistic 
yeah. uplifting, you know, sincere, the, the sincere film. The the guy winks at you and smiles as he as the movie comes to an end. Um, how is that not great? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, yeah, and and. And and the idea that a thing is, I mean, the, the Academy gets hit for this a lot. You know, they won't really nominate, you know, comedies and science fiction because we have to do serious stuff. I, I don't think that's a completely fair criticism, but, but you know, a thing can be serious and ridiculous as well, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that man's serious work. and sincere, too. Because, yeah, you know, we, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, the, yeah. it's the dangerous sincerity in an ironic age, yes. I think. Yeah. You know, that that's the thing. Is, it's the reason uh, Maya's going to uh, like this, because I'm going to mention Springsteen, because every time I mention <laughs> Springsteen, ahead. she brings it up. Uh, but, <laughs> I think it's black <laughs> is, and steel. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, is that Springsteen is, uh, is a sincere guy in an ironic mm-hmm. age, and that's what he takes it on the chin, you know, because he... he you know, and, and Spielberg is a sincere filmmaker in an ironic age. And like, take Tarantino, who's the most ironic filmmaker sure. there is in a way. Uh, Spielberg has a, when he, he, his character meets Hitler, all he can think to do is get an autograph. You know, right. Tarantino's character meets Hitler, right. he takes him out. Right, like, right. you know, like, uh, there's, it's tough to, for him to even think like Tarantino or think like sure. the ironic guys. You know, and and he should, classical, you know, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a thing that that the the, the Zack Snyder universe has missed, mm-hmm. which is, um, and I thought when I saw what was the second one, Batman. My brother calls it Batman hates Superman, which I think v, is, is the v, v, Superman. v Superman, right? Like um, it's a Supreme Court case. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It, it's so grim, and right. and my thought is, grim is is a is a 15 year old's idea of serious, you know? Um, It actually, I would love to see them put those resources into making a film that is unabashedly optimistic and positive in this ironic era, you know? Um, Because I think that's actually gutsier at this point, you know? know, Sure. Well, I think with him, you know, uh, and and I know Zach pretty well and, and, uh, you know, interviewed him many times over the years. And I think with him, um, he's so driven by the visual. Yeah, yeah. That he's not even really thinking about the, the mm. underpinnings of the emotion or the, the you know, the nuance of, you know, uh, optimism in a pessimistic age or cynical age. He, he it's, it's just about grandeur. Yeah, yes, he, yes. He, like, it's like the words don't kind of matter as yeah. much. And, and, you know, the, the story is, uh, it's supposed to be an uninterrupted series of great, successful achievements yeah. and grandeur. Yes. And yeah. uh, so he's picking it by color palette, you know, and people think it, you know, it's grim and it is grim, but he doesn't, he can't, I, I think that he, he doesn't even compute that. Like, right, right. Him, I can, I can see intense, that. You know? Yeah. He's yeah. Like, Superman's a good guy. I like Superman. He's yeah. optimistic. <laughs> well, yeah, he is, but he's in a world of shit. Like it's yeah. coming down on him. Like, so like, even if he's optimistic, he's your film is not, and and yeah. and that's a that's that's a connection he can't quite make. I like I, I like Sucker Punch. Like to me, like I mean, I'm, I've I had real problems with that film. Like you know, in the way it portrays women, in the way that that basically gives us a world where the the only thing that is available to women is that they're either going to be raped or luckily given yeah. a lobotomy and yeah. escape being raped. Yeah. Good lord, every woman's raped and every man's a rapist. I, you know, um, 
doesn't really sell popcorn for no. me. Um, yeah. yeah. But again, he he doesn't. That's that's like a, that's a math equation he's not doing. You know, he's yeah. He's, he's looking at it as well. Then I get to do this. And then I get to do this. And then I get to do this. You know? I, I think it's an exercise in graphic design. It feels like almost as opposed to storytelling. Precisely. Um, yeah, and and I think. Stephen was always into storytelling, but also sincere. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he's a fan of old Hollywood, old Hollywood aimed for uplifting. I don't think there's any problem with uplifting if it's honest, you know, if it's yeah. fake uplift, ugh, I mean, that's all, but, but fake anything is bad. Fake cynical is bad. That's you know, right. or, like you can see a cynical film by Stanley Kubrick or by Billy Wilder, and you're going to go right with that. I mean, I'm, I am yeah. not by nature a cynical person, but I can lock very much into that. Yeah. Um, but but you see, you know, you see someone being, you know, grim and depressed for because it's stylistic. Right. I, I have no more interest in that than I do in some fake, sunny, optimistic thing. You know, it is the sincerity part that's so important. Absolutely. You know? And you know, Star Wars is is a sincere film. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's a very sincere film. Um, and so is Empire. You know, I. I the other one's not as much maybe, you know, yeah, but, uh, yeah. but those, there, there's something in there that means something. That's why we pay attention to it, you know. Absolutely. Um, Can absolutely. I ask something? Please. Can I ask how you both would define sincerity? Like what, what, what it would mean in the context of making a movie? What people are saying or representing is, is meant exactly for what it is and, and, and not meant ironic like uh it's not done as artifice or as a clumsy imitation that's a, yeah. just a sort of a realization that what people are saying is what they mean uh, that's like what's crazy like he's he's when he's singing about this factory closing and stuff it's a factory it's he's not singing about something that's yeah so like so like if a character says something that to some degree that the filmmaker can understand is understanding that character or empathizing with them well i mean well i can tell you what it's not how about that like if okay. it's uh deadpool is a very ironic movie because what he's saying and what he's doing and, and the whole idea of is this a movie this, this sort of meta version of i'm uh, we're aware of what we're doing so we're a step removed we're winking at the audience like when superman winks at the audience that's superman winking at the audience not christopher reeve right when Deadpool winks at the audience, it's Ryan Reynolds winking at the audience, not Deadpool. Yeah. Mm. I, I think when the filmmaker doesn't stand outside of the film, like when, when you know, and how do you, how do you define that in a second? But I think that's a good example, Deadpool. Like, like when, when, when Christopher Reeve winks at the camera, that's Donner, that's Richard Donner right there. And, and his heart's in that. And how do you tell that? I don't know, I guess you don't feel the distance, you don't feel the artifice of it. I think one of the reasons sometimes some of the, the knockoff fantasy films and things aren't sincere is you can see a person, a director maybe saying, uh, oh, this is what they want. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm going to give them what they want. And it's like, well, but you don't, the reason Steven's films work so well and, and I think the better of George's films work so well is they're kind of, they care about this stuff. And I think you can tell that in a film. Honestly, Honestly, um, this, this, this may get me in trouble and hopefully doesn't get you a lot of nasty letters, but it's one of the problems I have with the Cullen brothers is, is my favorite films of theirs are Raising Arizona and yeah. True Grit yeah, those are because great. they're the ones where they're not mocking the characters. 
Miller's Crossing too, though. Miller's Crossing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel sometimes like they're mocking the audience for, for liking their films almost. That's right. Yeah. Again, I don't know them. I, you know, this maybe have nothing to do with what they're thinking, but it's how I feel when I watch them. I always feel like there's a distance, like there's, a, there's definitely a cynical streak to their films, but I don't quite know why they're being so hard on so many people. Right. And, and, and I felt like True Grit, they went with that story and they went with those characters and That's they right. believed in them. And I don't think there's a more moving moment in their movies than when Jeff Bridges can't quite get the girl yeah. to safety and he just goes, I have grown old, yeah. you know, and he fires the gun and then he just says it. And my thought is, oh my God, yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually choking up a little relating it because yeah. it worked. And, and Raising Arizona is a nutsy film, but it's got a lot of heart in it. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know, and, and I know, and, you know. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I mean, there's there there's this feeling that it's uh, the, the kind of the artifice of it, like how aware the characters in the movie are that they're in a movie, or how yes. aware yeah. that uh, everyone is that this is, you know, kind of like a, a, a wink and a, a you know a, a nudge kind of thing. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I could I could quibble with you about Deadpool because I think despite Deadpool operating in this kind of 5D hyperware dimension of his own, I think that he has moments as a character where he's super into it and you can feel it. Like oh, no, I think no, no, I'm he, not saying he's not into yeah. it. I love that film. No, I'm not saying he's not into it. I'm just saying that ironic's ironic's not bad. Like I yeah, I, it's just different. Like uh I mean that movie's super ironic, I think. Uh, I think it yeah. I mean it has lots of irony, but I think that its irony coexists with a lot of it's got a lot of heart emotion. It's yeah. got a lot of heart for sure. Yeah. I mean that's what that's the great trick of it. And that's why that works and Sucker Punch does it. Well Sucker Punch is not really a comedy, but um I mean I, I love the Deadpool movies, and I think Ryan's brilliant, brilliant in them. Um, uh, and they're and, and you they're can subversive. be ironic sincerely as well. Like if if you really, if your idea is I have an ironic point of view, and I'm going to show you the irony, as opposed to just adopting it as an attitude. I think. Right. Right. I, I mean, I guess for me that would be the difference. I mean, I'm trying to think about. It is elusive, really, though. Yeah, the whole thing yeah. is a little elusive, and, and I guess yeah. what I mean just is that. Spielberg's movies have heart and he and and when they are emotional you feel that heart and a lot of other movies when they're emotional mm -hmm. and you don't feel that heart it feels either calculated or artificial or it feels insincere yeah um, yeah but I'm, I'm, I'm probably not doing a great job of articulating exactly what I mean it's a it's a great question I have to I'm going to give this much more thought because I'm like how do you <laughs> how do you define sincere you know yeah but those early films have it. And, and, and I think the best of that, that whole wave of filmmakers, the early stuff kind of has that even with everybody really, you know, but um, you know, I think American Graffiti is very sincere. You know, that's, yeah. uh, that's the one, I mean, I think if you're a film person, you remember that movie, but uh, you know, people who go after George now forget, oh yeah, he made that film too, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you that's know? Right. yeah, that's right. That's right. All, all his movies have racing scenes. I yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. Like the, you know, you can really sense that he, it's important to him. That's <laughs> um, interesting. Well, fantastic. Well, I, I can tell you this is uh, we're sincerely glad that you joined Thank us. Thank you. I'm <laughs> sincerely glad you asked me. I really had a good time. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I could talk to you for days and days and days about this stuff. And uh, and I hope we get a chance to have you on again. I would love it. Please, please do. And uh, good luck with all of this. It's, it's a great show. All right. Well, fantastic. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Cheers. Bye -bye. Thanks, Ray. Thank 
So thank you so much for tuning into Mindspace. You just heard from Ray Morton, who's a writer and film historian and script consultant, um, talking about his uh, historical knowledge of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, so now for the chatty, informal dissection part, uh, I'm here with Jeff and with Garrett. So uh, we did talk with Morton about the controversial ending to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, both in the original version, which is controversial because uh, the main character, I forget his name. What's his name? Uh, well, kind of, uh, he, he pulls like a, he pulls a hungry heart, uh, on his family, you know, <laughs> like, uh, got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack went up in a saucer and I never went back, nice. um, which I think Spielberg has said that, well, I was a young man when I made that. And I, I, you know, consider that differently now. And then it's also controversial because in the in a in a re-release they refilmed some parts of the ending to show what is what is inside the the spaceship, which some people say like ruins the mystery. I think Spielberg then went back and cut it out in the in the third release of it. So I'd just love to hear your guys' thoughts on the ending because I've I've got a controversial take on it, but I'll save okay. it. Yeah, I think I think uh, a lot of people thought it was clunky when it went in and showed, uh, you know, uh, the aliens and had that interaction at the end. I think people thought it, compared to what they had seen the original, that it it didn't add much and uh, that it um, just wasn't nearly as nuanced or as interesting as the stuff that preceded it. You know, that was my mm -hmm. sense is that people thought it was like too much detail. Uh, kind of like uh, showing too much of the shark from Jaws. Uh, but, uh, you know, the changes, the, the amount of time that they covered, uh, the running time, you know, there's not that much. Um, but I think it is, you know, because it all built up to that moment, I think a lot of people felt that uh, it could have been a little, handled with a little more uh, subtlety or, or, or kind of uh, visual sophistication. Mm-hmm. I um well with the movie itself I grew up in Wyoming and uh since like that was the climax where it took place in uh the Devil's Tower I had a friend who lived he was born and raised in Moorcroft Wyoming which is right there next to it and that was always their like biggest thing was so I'm like hey you know that movie like I, it's right down the road yeah. <laughs> that's funny but, it's funny how that becomes like a local landmark because I live very close to Ferris Bueller's house which should oh, be right. in Chicago with Maya, but it's here in Long Beach, California with me. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes when you're, it's like on GPS, like you're driving down the street, it says Ferris Bueller's house. Like it's like, hmm. even those people live in it and none of them are named Ferris uh, or Bueller. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's funny because the guy that was born in Moorcroft, his last name is Bueller. So it's a weird full circle. That is weird. <laughs> that is weird. That is like really fundamentally weird, actually. <laughs> Uh, it's funny. Why, to me I don't that know if that was well, Garrett. What were you going to say about the ending? Well, you, I mean, I like can it? kind of nothing, nothing that tight. But I mean, my family is from. I think my mom grew up where lots of those John Hughes movies were filmed, and we routinely go to Devil's Tower as like a kind of family pilgrimage. 
um, because she's such a fan of sci-fi and Close Encounters oh. and um, also also just the West in general. So we've all kind of, we've all been circling these points for our entire lives. And I just want you to know that now the stars have aligned and they're like, we're meant to have a really good discussion. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> the pressure's on too, right? The, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just like any, any uh, landmark or uh, destination that has devil in the name, just because I just think it's like, wow, how did this happen? Like, you know, it's just, there's a thing in Florida that I've always been fascinated with. It's, it's a, it's just kind of a petrified sinkhole, like, or not petrified, but just, uh, you know, ancient sinkhole. Uh, and it goes down, kind of like winding down into the earth and you can feel the, the temperature from the natural springs and stuff. But they, uh, uh, it was a sacred place to the, the Native American tribes that, of that area who felt like they were getting in touch with, uh, you know, uh, things that were uh, bigger than them and, and spiritual things. But then, uh, when the Floridian, when Floridians came along uh, under the name Florida, uh, it became known as Devil's Millhopper, which I always thought was just this kind of very sinister and vague, strange name. But Millhopper is like what they store crops in, and kind of a cone-shaped, and the food and grain comes down. I guess the just the the, the shape of the, the the sinkhole gave it that name. But anything with Devil in the name, I think, is cool. Uh, no, I think I think Devil's Tower is similar in that it's actually it's a sacred place for the people who've lived there. I think it's I'm looking it up. It's called I think Bears Lodge or Place of the Bears in lots of indigenous languages. And when you go there, you can see uh, surrounding the rock formation lots of offerings tied in the trees. Um, it's really peaceful. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's a really nice nice place. So yeah, it it. it it definitely has a, a majesty to it just you know just just a, a kind of a natural kind of uh, imposing power to it yeah i think it was like the core of a volcano that the sides kind of like eroded and left it with the different type of rock that's in the center so oh wow it's interesting yeah, that was always a really cool place to go as a kid because my parents both like collect a lot of native american stuff so they knew a lot about the history of it. But then an added benefit with all that was my dad was also a geologist. So oh, like wow. that area itself, he's like, I can tell you everything about this. <laughs> wow, that's cool. So he should be sitting here instead of me right now. But. Well, you know, we can always have a, a we can have a, a, a wider close encounter with, we get everybody, like we can have our, <laughs> our we can get the Bueller's, we can get, uh, I, I go down the street, get these people, it'll be great. We can just, we can all, as long as we don't go in the saucer, just don't go in the saucer. Just keep it outside. Because that that's actually that that is actually my controversial take. I feel like I'm the only person I know who does it who doesn't have any issues with the original ending. Right. Um, not that yeah. it's not, I find it very disturbing, but I think that's kind of I don't know, I've always viewed that as a testament to to how good it is. Um yeah. I feel like so much of that film is structured like a horror movie. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the weird lights in the sky and the scene where you know this, this my dog, <laughs> <laughs> um, where the sun is in the house and you know the lights are coming through the bottom of the door. That's like one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I watched it with my roommate and she like spent the whole thing like clutching me and screaming 
And it's horror operates in so many ways, whether it's, you know, the kind of classic encroaching monsters or, you know, the idea of the government cover up to the extent that they're willing to kill cows on the side of the road um, to um, just kind of cosmic, almost like horror of, you know, them trying to interpret the, the, the idea that that scene in India where all those people can come together and um, I don't know, enter this kind of trance-like state where they're relaying messages from the beyond. Um, I think that so much of that movie is horror that it it would be kind of, uh, it would be too simple to end it with like just a resolution, you know? Cause I feel mm-hmm. like if you end it with, oh, this peaceful exchange and, and like, you know, it was all just a big misunderstanding and we all get to go home to our families. Like, it's kind of like, it, it would almost negate everything that's gone on. Whereas I feel like ending it on this note that is, disturbing psychologically that that a human would be like yeah i'll just i'll just go um i think it opens a lot up to discussion and it leaves you thinking at the end rather than um you know rather than reaching an equilibrium yeah 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 or or a happy catharsis yeah 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 that's my theory (laughs) that makes sense because uh the last thing there would be is clarity and and uh and kind of tidy resolutions to things if we were facing a moment that kind of uh, beyond us, you know, like the, the, the encountering another, you know, life form from another planet would be so off-putting, especially if they were so far advanced ahead of us that it would be hard to comprehend. And, and um, yeah, and it has that sort of kind of almost like a cult feeling to it too. Like, you know, like uh, is what perception and, and sanity mean when you're confronted with something that is an you know, existential threat or perceived as such. Well, I think most movies um, benefit from a, uh, an ending that made people talk about it. And this is, I think, a good example of that where like so many people are like, why would you ever leave your family? And people are like, yeah, it makes sense, let's go. Right. Um, yeah, the, I guess the messy endings, in the, good, the good form of messy are, yeah. I like a lot. Um, yeah, it is interesting too, and it's interesting how it affects, how it reflects Spielberg's points of view. Like you know, Maya, you were saying, like he he said he was at an age where it didn't, you know, the most compelling thing to him was the the, the uh, you know the possibility that lay out ahead as opposed to the responsibility that is right there next to him. Um, but like that reminds me of uh, uh, at Comic Con, Spielberg. The best question that he was asked on stage wasn't by me, which kind of sucks since I was interviewing him <laughs> on stage. But the best question he got asked all day was this kid who came up and just super polished kid to stand in front of 6,000 people and said, you know, you know, what, what, which of, I know which of your movies had the biggest influence on me or effect on me. I want to know which of the movies that you've made has had the biggest effect and influence on you, which is just a, it's a freaking fascinating question. Like, it's a really good question. Uh, especially for somebody as heartfelt as Spielberg. And his answer was E.T. because he said that he had had success with films that had young casts, uh, uh, young actors in the ensemble. Um, and But that at the end of every production, that was always kind of a, uh, a rupture 
with them uh, as far as, you know, he, he took it really hard when the production was over and he didn't get to see them all the time. And he said, that's when he realized that he wanted to be a father. Uh, it was because of E.T. and saying goodbye to those kids. And, that, and, then, and then he had five kids, you know, uh, after that, I think it was five. Um, and I was like, wow, what a, what a, you know, sort of a fascinating, revealing thing. But the guy that wasn't sure uh, he needed to stick around for the screen kids and close encounters is the same guy that, you know, even after the credits rolled on E.T., he wanted to, to reconnect with that sensation of being a, a father or a parent. Um, I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, you could psycho psychoanalyze the imagery at the end of Close Encounters where he walks aboard the starship, but the aliens are so small that he's like holding their hands, Yeah, uh, which is which is kind of inverted to the nth degree because they're so advanced and he's been learning from them and they've taken over his mind and he's leaving his kids and, you know, where he's, you know, going on board to learn about them um but yeah, who's, who's the child and yeah, yeah. and it's also he's probably helping them walk because of the, the, the costumes and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> but the child uh, is the father of the man situation yeah exactly mm -hmm. and you know i you could always just cut in a, the final scene from that twilight zone you know to serve man it's a menu you know like mm -hmm. that's what happens when richard dreyfus flies off you know it's like they eat him <laughs> uh, it's 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 interesting though that you know the benevolent alien idea that this is the horror movie that that turns into uh you know a misunderstood uh first encounter between these mm -hmm. you know two uh species but um you know it's uh who was it we had on that one time that was talking about how whenever like times are good the sci-fi is usually dystopian or yeah. if times are bad the sci-fi is really good yeah yeah it, it, like it's true. with the, with the uh, aliens and stuff like a lot of times whenever they have like the benevolent aliens it's during a time of kind of like oh things aren't going great at home right now like so these these beings are so advanced they don't need war and they don't need to kill us or anything and then a lot of times you'll have like the other opposite of that when things are good here we'll write stories about these aliens coming down and viewing us just as like animals and being like that ah, get them out of here yeah yeah it's it's, it's an interesting approach um to looking at science fiction and, and it holds up to a certain degree um but i mean you could say like you know 1968 was the you know and, and i mean you could say like 1968 most tumultuous year in american history arguably you know mm -hmm. uh and the, the the dominant science fiction you know uh, franchise was Star Trek, which was the most optimistic and forward-looking uh, as far as its its you know ethos. But um, that, it is very interesting that 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 idea that it's almost like a Rorschach test. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but I think any science fiction that's too positive gets kind of bland to me at some point. Yeah, I think if it doesn't have that uh, danger or darkness or edge to it, then it, it sometimes it doesn't feel as uh as uh, kind of as important or as meaningful i mean it's it's been a real challenge for star trek i think is to how to have movies that have really high stakes and, and a lot of peril and, and consequences but to hold on to that optimism and that sort of upbeat like everything's going to be great unless it's not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so that's that's uh 
it's kind of the tug there. But uh, there's some great science fiction right now too. You know, uh, I really, you know, I think things like Black Mirror and some of the mm. stuff that we're seeing on on the streaming sites is just really great. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was watching. You ever watch Community? You know, I have. I have. Yeah. Okay. Not there was an episode. That you remember uh, uh, where they had an app that everybody rates each other on? Oh, I and I found out that came out like three years before the Black Mirror episode. Really? Yeah, I was oh, like, wow. oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wow, that's kind of funny. Yeah. We can cut out this awkward silence. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, I never know how to finish it. What do we got? What can we... we want to tie back into the movie? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm trying to think of what else we talked to to him about um, wait when's the anniversary or is it is it even like, an anniversary yeah it's like now i think isn't it oh it's definitely an anniversary it's like 30 40 30 years 40 oh it's years. from 77 so it would oh, be it, it's raiders that had the anniversary mm -hmm. oh okay what, yeah 77 so next year's the anniversary yeah what is next um it's interesting to me that I was looking at this movie up on uh, Wikipedia, and there's three different run times for the three different cuts, the theatrical, special, and directors. And it's like just two minutes are added or taken away. That's interesting. I feel like usually yeah. there's more or a lot less or something. Yeah, it's just that they're so, uh, such pivotal moments or such late in the game, mm. high profile moments that, you know, the, the impact of them is discussed. It is interesting to what, director's cuts are and stuff and i think we were talking once before that uh you know the oliver stone director's cut that he did for um uh troy was shorter than the theatrical release like it's the mm -hmm. only time i can remember a director's cut where he actually said no less this let more of this needs to go on the floor like i just thought that was fascinating yeah yeah that's not the normal uh, narrative you hear about that no it's usually not. like uh what is it once upon a time in america where they take out like two hours of the movie and it becomes a terrible movie exactly and then they release the full directors and they're like oh wait a minute this is great <laughs> yeah i think the first the first big one for that was blade runner which had the same yeah. special effects kind of as as the um inserted and then redacted ending of close encounters yeah Oh, you know what? I just realized I had to look it up. I, I completely, I knew I got that wrong. Uh, he did Alexander, not Troy. I got, mm -hmm. I knew I had my, uh, oh. it's all Greek to me. Uh, <laughs> so I'll Yeah, you can, sooner. if you, I think, because Douglas Trumbull, who did the special effects for Close Encounters, he, when you look in the spaceship, it looks very similar to the city in Blade Runner, which he would do like only a couple years later. So oh, wow. fun, fun bit of trivia. Yeah. I went to New York to visit the last producer for this show and uh, went to the moving picture museum and they had oh, the yeah. model of the uh, Wallace, is it Wallace Corp building? Tyrell. Like the, the Tyrell. Yeah. Tyrell. Wallace is the second movie, right? 2049? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jared Leto's, is that who he is? Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, I just saw that one a few true. nights ago, so that was fresh in my head. Sure. But, oh, what's your thoughts? on 2049 yeah i liked it a lot i think it's one of 
the few sort of the few sequels where I was like, oh yeah, this definitely deserved to be made. Like this is great. Like I I thought the story was different enough, but similar themes. Um, it's longer. It's a lot longer. I think like the original is only like an hour and a half. This is like two and a half or something. Yeah. It's uh, they did the right thing too. I think by having Harrison Ford in there just a little bit because it could have easily just made it like a cash cow and for you know, sure throw Deckard in here, but they like, and they kind of advertised him as if he was going to be in there a lot more. And so it's kind of yeah. surprising, but it was like a good surprise in a weird way. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, those no, new characters that just have to interact with the old characters. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. It, it, it's interesting to come back that much later too. And, and yeah. it's funny too, cause Tron did the same thing and Tron came out in 82. And then, you know, you look at, you know, Jeff Bridges coming back to doing, you know, when he came back for Tron, um, just a few, I mean, a few years before the Blade Runner sequel. But um, it's funny that those movies that were not successful, like, I mean, Blade Runner was not a hit. I mean, it was mm -hmm. uh, the opposite of a hit. Uh, and Tron was the first, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, a groundbreaking movie for animation, uh, obviously. But uh, I don't know that it was, you know, I think it was almost uh, more respected and loved for its cultural echoes and video games and, and look and the aesthetic than for actually, you know, um, the story or the, the movie going experience. I'll hear a lot about that from some people, by the way. Some people are going to disagree mightily on that. But um, I think it's cool uh, when they remakes, I'm not a huge fan of reboots. I'm not a huge fan of, but like revisiting a world, I kind of like because it's like, there's certain rule. I feel like it's more of like a puzzle in filmmaking where like, okay, you have these rules that have already been established. How can we create something new to abide by these rules? Yeah. Sometimes and, uh, it works better than you think it's going to work too. Yeah. Like it, the Jurassic World stuff has been, I wouldn't have guessed that they were going to get that much more uh, gas in the tank of that fossil mm. fuel, you know, cause like I was kind of, <laughs> I was pretty, pretty done on Jurassic Park for a while, you know, but uh, yeah. I've, I've been pleasantly surprised by uh, that and also the play of the apes revisitation and remake mm. you know the not the tim burton one but the the um you know the the full fox uh franchise that you know uh but aren't those like prequels sort of like they're prequels, yeah, related yeah, exactly. to the first couple well no but i mean no it changes it the, the i mean it changes the whole it does oh okay yeah yeah because you know the and i think the great innovation of it is the uh the idea, you know, in that uh, the rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, the idea that uh, it's the search for a drug that will help with Alzheimer's mm. by promoting brain growth that leads directly to, you know, the first ape that makes this leap forward. You know, I thought that was a really, really sort of uh, uh, smart way to get into it, and you really understand mm. the motivations of why it happened and stuff like that. None of that was anywhere close in the in the the original like 60s yeah. you know okay. launch which uh which of course was written by rod serling the first planet of the apes movie i love that oh, wow. i didn't know screenplay. that yeah That's it so just cool. looks unusual on the screen when you see the credit because it's it's kind of unexpected i think like he didn't walk out and start talking to us i don't know if to make it when your name is when your name is the plot twist that was <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right. That's that's one of the crazy screen credits. The other one I always thought was strange was on Superman, the first Superman, the Dick Donner Superman from '78. Um, uh, Mario Puzo wrote the screen. Oh yeah, you know the Godfather, the author. 
um, just kind of unexpected and kind of strange. Didn't he come? Didn't he come from the pulps though? I thought his early career he he wrote I think in either pulps or comics. So I don't know. I'm not sure, but I mean, it, yeah, it's more just I think he just so associated with Godfather. That yeah, it's just, like, mm-hmm. uh, it's just well, it's funny seeing that and then seeing Brando, and you're like, wait a minute, what what movie? Am I yeah. Watching? Yeah, and not, and not that long after. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, um, uh, you know, it, that movie could have been so different. If you look at the original casting choices for that, you know, who they went after, it's just, although that a lot of that was a publicity stunt, you know, I don't know if they ever really expected that Robert Redford or Clint Eastwood play Superman, but just the idea that they thought that was a good idea was just is, is really interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, Robert Yeah, I'm looking up the Wikipedia what? for Puzo. He started his career writing for, yeah, men's pulp magazines, huh. such as Men <laughs> magazine. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a lot um, to do with and Superman. He wrote, he wrote adventure <laughs> features for the magazine True Action. So I love it. That's fantastic. That's pretty good. I, I love the titles of stuff back then. Um, there's, I have a comic book from the, the uh, 50s called, it's called Calling All Boys. And it's, uh, it shows these various scenes of action. Uh, and all of them sort of have a kind of a, kind of a, a sexual unintended sexualized kind of aura and right in the middle of it there's a big picture of J. Edgar Hoover calling all boys a black and white picture of the most oh unattractive unattractive photo of J. Edgar Hoover that has ever been published in fact uh, and the, the total uh, of collected effect of that cover is pretty pretty awesome it's in my it's in my stack of like the weirdest most uh, ill-advised comics uh, ever published I'm looking this up. I want to see if I can find a photo. Calling all boys. Yeah, put in calling all boys and Jagger Hoover. It's yeah. worth it. I, I love the, like, just the earnestness of so much of that, though, like the Hardy Boys and everything, <laughs> especially because I feel like young adult fiction has trended so gritty yeah. and so that the, um like, the kind of anti-heroic, like, everyone's cynical, everyone's, like, right. you know, violent, Weary. grimdark hell worlds are everywhere. Like they're all super bloody. So many of these protagonists are like unprincipled assassins or mercenaries, you know, 17 year old, you know, people who like just wax about how there is no good in this universe. And um, whereas I feel like those old books, I mean, as naive as they they were and as kind of stupid as they could be, they're very bright and sunny and I, I saw this one at an antique mall that was like, I forget the name of this character. It was just something generic, like John Squarejaw, boy. <laughs> like Tom, boy. Tommy Terrific is one of them. Yeah, it was something like that. And it was like the, the, the blurb on the back said that's like, John is a swell guy. You'll like him. You'll like reading about him being swell. It was, <laughs> it was so pure. It was so pure and good. Um, I don't know if it made me nostalgic. Even yeah, though, I don't know if Mario Puzo you know. was writing that though, right? Like, cause he, he, yeah. I think men, I don't know if men is, is, is telling those stories. Yeah, Let I would love to find out magazine. that. Yo, be careful. Puzo wrote Crime Buster. <laughs> I found that image. It's a calling all boys, Tiger, a Texas Ranger, football guy, and then Jager yeah. in the middle. Crime yeah, Buster playing. number one. Yeah, everything about that cover is like, you're like, what is going on? The tiger story is called Tiger Bait. 
Tiger bait. <laughs> really? There's tiger bait, bad man blues, and touch football. Touch football. Come on now. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I call foul. What is it? I mean, clearly this is. It's just there's there's got to be some irony here. This can't just be as as, as simple. And that picture, like what 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 was Jagger Hoover doing? Like, uh, why did they think that this was a promotional photo that would be good for the G man? I feel like they just like surprised him with a flash. And they're like, yeah. that's the image, run it. Like, <laughs> He's the best. That that is so bizarre. Oh, well, it's Hero of the Month. They have another one where there's Bing Crosby's on it. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's some what, weird what stuff. What are some other? You know, the DC published uh, more than 100 issues of Bob Hope. 100 monthly issues. Do you know that? Really? Like, oh, was... Bob, Hope, Bob Hope was a 1946 Hero of the Month in Calling All Boys. Also Calling All Boys. Cooper. It's Bob Hope. See? Da, 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 da. That's hilarious imagine like a comedian now having a comic or something yeah like exactly uh and jerry lewis had a dc comic book like it's just for years and years and years it's just like what what the hell it's not a good idea dean martin had his own comic book like clearly there was a lot of comic books being published that weren't necessary I love how intense they are. In the Bing Crosby calling all boys, there's a story called Streaky Smith and Races Against Death. And it's like this boy falling out of a canoe. You like we were all there. I I lived that. That was that was scary times. That was scary times. Man. That, you know, the one the, the first comic book I owned that was from the 50s. Cause like I I first had comics that were published when I was a kid in the 70s and in the 80s and then i got some 60s ones and then i got one from the 50s and my and it was a big deal to me when i got one from the 50s and even if it wasn't a superhero it was the only one i could afford and it was gene autry's horse champion that was the Amazing. comic book it was like issue 32 of gene autry's horse champion and it, you know you're like wow it's not even like it's not even gene autry like i mean if gene autry that's one thing but this is just you know champion and the champion's not it's not like you know silver from lone ranger or, or even trigger from roy rogers i mean this is a pretty this is pretty fourth fourth level so like here's uh, this guy oh sorry go ahead garrett i was just saying so like here's a comic of the guy that worked for the waynes before alfred That's... <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly here's the lesser known laundry lady of the waynes yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. I think the first like comic I had was uh, a Tintin comic, but it, it was like a reprint, so it's not as impressive. But like, I, I just looked it up. It was the Blue Lotus, the one that had the the color version. So it came out initially in color in 1946. Oh wow, those are beautiful books. You know, that yeah. art's really, really, really cool. Um, and I was fascinated by Tintin, just how popular and successful it was in most of the world, but not here. It was like, it's the comics version of soccer uh, or football. Um, you know, the, it meant so much to people around the world, but not here. Um, so it, it was surprising to me that Thompson twins, you know, are characters in Tintin. And that's where the name of the the, the group, the, the music group from the eighties, they took their name straight from Tintin. Oh, yeah. 
And like, that was like such a, wow, like a unexpected cultural uh, kind of, uh, you know, secret code that I unraveled, you know, late in the nineties of like, yeah. oh my gosh, wait, there's a, that's cool. a group I know that's based their name on a comic book. And I did not know that that's kind of un unexpected. And then it's like Duran Duran, you know, no, yeah. finding out that they were the na name after a character from Barbarella, you know, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. I love that. I uh, bring this back to uh, Close Encounters now, the Tintin movie that came out, what, 2013, 2014. That was directed by Spielberg as well. Yeah. And that yeah. one I remember was, because I remember I went and saw it with some friends because I like read all the comments. So I was super excited. My friends had no idea what Tintin was. And then while they're there, they're like, who are these two like detectives? They're so dumb. I was like, you don't understand. Like that's the top, like they yeah. have to be here. We need them here. Exactly, exactly. It's like part of the, the landscape. Um, I kind of like that movie, you know, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't That's really another have... one that like, it seems like it's for kids, but I feel like it does decent at also not being black and white in the way that like a lot of kids movies are like toward a, yeah. cause I watched it again couple months ago i was like pleasantly surprised that i still liked it yeah yeah and they loved they were so excited about doing it peter jackson yeah. and spielberg um and uh yeah it's interesting although you know you look at the whole thing like movie characters are, are uh, movies are about characters who change and tvs about characters that don't that's the, mm -hmm. one of the, the you know mindsets of approaching it as we talked about before but um like, I don't know, in any Spielberg film, if there's a character that changes less than Tintin does, it's from, because the beginning of the movie is like, I'm Tintin. And at the yeah. end, it's like, I'm Tintin. And like, there's nothing that's changed. Like, everything around him has gone crazy, but he's the same guy. Well, that's how he always was in the comics, too. Like, I, I watched a documentary, too, on Herge, or Herge, I can't remember Herge, how yeah. Herge. But he uh, was talking about how, like, he kind of made Tintin almost kind of bland, so you can just imagine yourself as the character. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of cool. It's like, I, mean, I don't know if many other things were like the main character is just kind of a blank slate and it works. Like, right. <laughs> I yeah. mean, he's not a blank slate, but I've always thought something similar about Indiana Jones. I mean, he's got a personality, but and I mean, I think that he, he develops across the course of the movie. Like maybe he, you know, gets closer to his father, but I feel like his personality has a stable kind of baseline that yeah. doesn't deviate too much. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and that's one of the reasons, like, what the, the genre hero offers is that, you know, that, that unless there's like, a, you know, they're getting kind of pulled apart and stuff. A lot of times, if it's a multi-film franchise, that they're not going to change a whole lot. I think that's one of the criticisms of it. I think that some people feel, you know, that they they are two-dimensional or, or don't change enough. But it's interesting, and, and with TV, you think about it. Really, is the characters? I mean, they're Archie Bunker. It's not about here's a, look how different Archie is now. It's like Archie's the same. Everything around him changes, and like that's yeah. the comedy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. Like Indiana Jones, like because of the you know the the articulated hero that he is, he is kind of frozen in time a little bit. You know, I mean, even if he gets older or younger, it just gets grouchier or whatever. But it's it's still. You know, he's not going to veer off too much, um, which, you know, makes him uh, not as interesting to some people, but also beloved to many others. Mm -hmm. Well, another Close Encounters. I think, uh, would you, would you want to see another, you know, Spielberg went back 
with War of the Worlds, it felt like he was rebut it was a rebuttal to himself. Um, do you? I'm just curious. Do you two have you seen? If you've seen both, do you? Which one do you like better as far as, or do you, does it resonate more with you? Um, I've seen both, but I don't remember a lot about War of the Worlds. Yeah, I feel like I more. remember more about it, yeah, yeah. Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. And I've seen War of the Worlds more recently. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. But, That's true. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat glowing orbs, <laughs> yeah. glowing colorful orbs. Aren't they like... Oh. In the movie, I think they explicitly describe them as being like children's toys. I think that it's just psychologically, it just we react to to their design so positively that it's hard. They're hard to avoid. They're like Christmas lights or candy. <laughs> yeah. At first, Jeff, I thought I thought Jeff was going to talk about like sequels, like you know, if mm. he if he was going to ask us if we wanted any of them revisited, but. I, I don't know. I, I feel like like if you said that they did close encounters of the fourth kind, I'd kind of cringe. I don't yeah. even know what that means in the um in like the book of, of alien encounters. Like what 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 are the fourth kind is? Yeah. It's like is it just one, two, and three? Is that as far as I go in the book? Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> somebody, <laughs> somebody in the audience is like, you idiots. <laughs> that happens a lot. But I feel that way with other podcasts I listen to as well. And they're talking about something I know. I'm like, it's this, it's this. Like, just say it, come on. Yeah. But, uh, close encounters. I love how there are tiers, though, like a tier list. <laughs> close encounters, S tier. Oh, I think there's been a bunch of like, not related, but like they've used the third kind, fourth kind. I think there's been a fourth kind and a fifth kind movie. I think they've been... Hmm in independent though of the original oh, famous yeah. title it's always strange to me when they do those movies where it's like here's a direct sequel that we're not in, all involved with the original people yeah oh i guess the fourth kind is alien abductions ah that'd be a very different movie that'd be much more uh, cosmic horror than third kind yeah i mean i mean they do abduct people in third kind that's kind of creepy that's that's another reason I don't like the whole idea that it's like it, the ending should be happy and he should go back to his family. I'm like these aliens have systematically kidnapped um, Earthlings over a period of about a hundred years and kept them in a fugue state for unknown purposes. Yeah, <laughs> bit bizarre, but oh my I do God. like how they all they all come back at the end. I didn't realize that Truffaut was in this, the French director. Like I, I guess yeah. when I because I saw this a little while ago and I think it was before I knew who Francois, was it Francois Truffaut before I knew who he was so it didn't like mean mm -hmm. anything when I saw his name and now like looking at the cast list I was like wait a minute he is like second build mm -hmm. I do I do like as somebody as an academic that the movie has this fascination with this kind of continental and French academia um, in because I think it was based on some academics that Steven Spielberg and linguists that he was really interested in, in communication and communication through sound and lots of the, the theories that were coming out of France. So um, I think it has its drawbacks. Like, I think it definitely feels a bit kind of colonialist at times, like that the idea yeah. that the experiences of, of 
whether they're you know hicks from america or the, the the masses in india and africa that they have to that the french person has to come in and, and translate and and tell them what's really going on but um i i do like how the academics are the heroes in it yeah. <laughs> um as well as the common people i i like that they're it's at least working towards a kind of collaboration yeah. between the the eggheads in the labs and the um the the people who pull up their lawn chairs to watch the aliens on the side <laughs> of the road i didn't think about it until you mentioned like the linguists and stuff but like i guess like a rival wouldn't have never happened without this movie you know what i mean like yeah. the it's kind of, I like tracing those back, saying like, all right, this movie led to this movie, this movie, this movie. Yeah, I think even right down to the, the five note theme song of Close Encounters, I think mm -hmm. Williams was trying to make like a song for it. And then, and then Spielberg was like, no, no, that's not how they would communicate. It's not a song. <laughs> it's a communication. It has to be a jingle. It's like a dial tone. It's like, it has to be. Um, so like that was his his principle behind it that it couldn't be like a, a song as we'd recognize it it was really a message um, like a like a ringtone or a jingle or a signature rather than like a or like a bird call rather than a um, you know like a Indiana Jones type suite <laughs> yeah yeah it'd be like uh, was it that golden record we sent out in space just all the music yeah. from America at the time I think. <laughs> Mm -hmm. think we're communicating with the aliens and we're actually just like hearing their music like, oh wait a minute <laughs> yeah i mean because it, it sounds like a bird call like i can't whistle yeah. but <laughs> got the point <laughs> mm -hmm. have you seen uh, the south park episode where the internet dries up where the what the internet dries up it's like no. a grapes of wrath parody everybody goes to california oh. it's like the last place that there's any internet but uh um, oh to fix the internet, they have to go into like the, the internet, whatever, the secret government layer and the internet communicates mm -hmm. through like the doo, 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 uh, close encounters like theme. And mm -hmm. I think at the end, Cartman's like, I'm gonna go with the internet guys. And they're like, what do you do? Like? It somehow goes from Grapes of Wrath to Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. Well, that's funny. <laughs> no, I like that they would use Close Encounters as an analog for the internet rather than like, of something more obvious like having to turn off hal in 2000 or something yeah